Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. October the 23rd, 2019. Lorry parks up in an industrial estate in Greys, Essex. The driver is a County Armagh man. His name is Mo Robinson. He opens the door of his trailer. He has to. His boss, Ronan Hughes, gave him the following instruction. Give them air quickly. Don't let them out. But it was too late. All 39 people in that container, immigrants from Vietnam, were dead already. Two of them were just 15 years old. Our main story is the discovery of 39 bodies in a lorry container in Essex. The vehicle, which is thought to have crossed the English Channel from Zeebrugge in Belgium to the port of Tilbury in Essex, was apparently being driven by a 25-year-old man from Northern Ireland who's been arrested on suspicion of murder. Hello, uh, no, I'm a lorry driver and I just lifted a trailer from the port. Okay, so place your breeze in. No, there, there's uh, loads of them. There's immigrants in the back, but they're... They're all lying on the ground. Okay, are they breathing? I don't think so. How many approximately? Oh, the trailer's jammed. I I don't know. Ronan Hughes and Mo Robinson were part of a Northern Ireland-Romanian gang that was central to people smuggling into the UK. And they were far from alone. The judge has handed out uh, long sentences, and I should say that's not uh, unexpected. Um, The judge has told... Uh, the seven men in the dock. This was a smuggling operation that was sophisticated, long-running and profitable. To tell the story of that criminal network, I'm joined by our crime correspondent, Alison Morris. Alison Morris, once again, you're very welcome to The Bell Tale. I think we have to start this story in an industrial estate in Essex where doesn't begin for the victims of this story, but it begins as a news story. Yeah, so what happened in the early hours of Wednesday the 23rd of October 2019, police in Essex received a 999 call from Mo Robinson, who was uh, an Armagh lorry driver who had said he had opened the back of his cab and he had found people who weren't breathing. Hello callers, patient breathing. Hello, uh, no, I'm a lorry driver and I just lifted a trailer from the port. 
Okay, is the patient breathing? No, there, there's uh, loads of them. There's immigrants in the back, but they're they're all lying on the ground. Um, at the start, he had tried to claim that he had stopped and he didn't know that these people were in the back of the lorry, but he was arrested, arrested almost immediately. So when police arrived, I can only imagine the horrific thing that met them. So we had 39 Vietnamese men, women and two children. There were two 15-year-olds among those that were dead as well. They had suffocated and died of, of hypothermia on their, their journey and that was where the investigation began and at the very on the, the face of it you have one man in a lorry with 39 very vulnerable dead people in the back of it but then when the police investigation started we realised that this was part of a huge people smuggling network at which Bo Robinson was just one cog in that entire machine um, and a lot of it was centred around people from this part of the world um, so it was a vast European smuggling network but involved people from this side of the world so what we do know is the Vietnamese um, migrants who had paid to be trafficked as I said there was 39 of them one of the the fathers of one of the, the young person in, in involved who died his young daughter was one of those who died she had messaged him sent him a text message um, as, as she knew she was dying they knew they were they were suffocating to death and he had later said that he had paid £30,000 for her to be safely transported to the UK to work and you have um, 39 people well then you can see the huge massive profits that were being made by these people smugglers in relation to this so over a million pound for one uh, in one lorry load you know it could be anywhere between half a million to a million and greed had got the better of them because Robinson then when he finally admitted his guilt he admitted that he had done this previously before, but in that case, I think there were around 15 people in the back of the, the trailer in the lorry. Um, but on this occasion, there was 39, and clearly there was not enough oxygen within that very sealed container to sustain that amount of people on that journey. We know they're from Vietnam. Um, I understand most of them are from the more northern part of Vietnam, which is the poorer part of Vietnam. Despite that, you know, in one case... The family managed to get 30,000 together, pounds. Uh, Another case, 15,000. I mean, I suppose the question is for many people then, if you can gather that money together, why can't you get a tourist visa uh, and a a plane ticket and then do a runner? Why is it necessary to to, to really take a huge chance for your life and get in the back of a lorry? Yeah, so these are, are economic migrants. They're not refugees. They're not entitled to refugee status or any sort of um, of the the, the special um, compensations and law that exist for refugees. Anyone travelling from countries like Vietnam Vietnam are simply in search of a better life. So they're economic migrants. They wouldn't have the right to work and they wouldn't have the the um, right to exist in the in the UK as it was. What happens is I did a a long quite a few years ago. I went with a charity along a sort of um, the the refugee trail that existed at that time. And there was a mixture in that part of Europe and up and around um, Serbia and, and Bulgaria and that there was a, a mixture of people who were a mixture of economic migrants and, and, and refugees fleeing war. And from the economics migrants' point of view, what would happen is it wouldn't just be a family that would gather together 30,000 pounds. It would be an entire village and everybody would put in everything that they owned to get this one person to the UK and get them settled up and then that person then has a duty 
to go to work and send practically every penny they earn back again and that money's used then to get another person out and so forth and that is, is how they were operating in terms of that. The the father um, of one of the, the young girls who died, she had sent him a text message that said, I'm sorry dad and mum, the way I went overseas was not successful. Mum, I love dad and you so much. I am dying because I cannot breathe. Um, that was just one of them and I know that several others and when when police did arrive to investigate that horrific scene that must have greeted them when they when they got there they found blood on the, the door and palm prints um, and so you know people trafficking wasn't particularly something that is a, a sort of crime and security journalist I had ever really covered before smuggling let's face it we're no strangers to smuggling this part of the world um, and smuggling of all kinds of commodities back and forward across borders but the, the people trafficking and what really amazed me is how much of an Irish and Northern Irish influence there had been in this crime crime ring. Mo Robinson was to be paid £1,500 per person. That's quite a considerable amount of money when you think about it for a very short run. All he had to do was pick them up at the port. He'd pick up so just to explain, another guy Eamon Harrison was convicted because he picked the, the trailer up and he took the trailer to Suburga, to the, the ferry terminal there. What would then happen is you don't drive your lorry onto the, the ferry the trailer at the back of your lorry is taken off, it's placed onto the ferry and then another lorry cab which was Mo Robinson's meets it at the other side hitches this onto the back of his lorry and all he had to drive, do was drive a few miles away to an industrial estate and I remember at the time seeing an aerial photograph of his lorry that was taken, some of the news crews in England had scrambled quite quickly and had taken some aerial pictures of the, um, of the lorry where it was parked and it was on a very rounded corner. It's still online. People can go and look at it. And you can see, I mean, I'm not a lorry driver, but I do drive a car. And if I was to stop somewhere in the middle of the night, it certainly wouldn't have been there because something coming around the corner couldn't have seen you. And it later then transpired that that was the blind spot in the industrial estate. Obviously, industrial estates would have quite a bit of CCTV that this had been done before numerous times and that this was the blind spot where he was to stop and he was to let these people out. They were going to run off into the night. He was going to get back into his lorry and go on about his business, which is what he had done on the previous occasion, he told police. But instead, they were all dead. And this is then when I started, I suppose as a journalist, started looking and saying, well, you know, what is what is the local connection to this type of horrific crime? I mean, you're preying on the most vulnerable, vulnerable of people, people desperate to find themselves a new life elsewhere. And there's vast, vast sums of money involved in it. I mean, huge sums of money. Um, I suppose, but that's where, not to labour the point, but, you know, the classic way that Irish people went to America, you know, you go as a tourist with a certain amount of cash to prove... Well, yeah. to Once prove, you do that, though, you're stuck there. And you're then, stuck yeah, there. Because you uh, travel home again, you're not getting back in again, and, ex- as you know. Yeah, exactly, so. but that's what everybody's done. But it wasn't. it's not an option, clearly, for people in many, many countries. You're just not going to... It's not it's, going to be believed that you're a tourist. It's not, the world has changed so much. And, and America, you know, Irish people, you know, we're the, we are the world's, you know, the, we've emigrated to the four corners of the earth. But even those people who left... Ireland going right back, you know, they were they were greeted warmly in most occasions when they arrived in America. We live in such a different place now and you can see in terms of especially this current Tory administration who seem to, you know, distracting people from everything else that's going on in the world with this obsession with small boats. People are not made welcome and they're not received with open arms. 
Um, and even though sometimes they might bring very valuable skills and we could see that after Brexit there was a real shortage of that kind of farm labour to pick, you know, with crops down in fields because there's no one to come and pick them. These were people who are here, you know, they're not coming to lay about on the benefit system because they're not entitled to any benefits. They were coming to work. Um, you would like to think that, a, 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 you know, a humane country would provide a safe route to anyone who is willing to come and work in a country and offer their services. But we live in a place, a time now, where every kind of safe point of of, of entry to a, comp- to a country is being shut down and it's being shut down by legislation that's being passed through at a rapid rate. So, you know, people are then resorting to very desperate means. I'm going to just say one one thing that happened was I was in a refugee camp, an illegal refugee camp, um, in Serbia and there was lots of young men, none of whom, the majority majority of whom wouldn't have been entitled to refugee status because they were mainly from Pakistan and the conditions were absolutely horrific. The smell of the sort of rotten rubbish and everything that was there was awful. And on one wall there was graffiti painted on the wall and it said, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. And that always stuck with me, you know, and it would make you, when you think, would you do that? And how desperate would you have to be to do that? I suppose it's a point, and people might be might be saying, "Well, why, why you know get back to the main story?" But I mean, I suppose we have to con- conceptualize why people chose. What's I mean, they would have known, and people have said this to me: they must have known it was very dangerous to get to get in the it back. Apparently, of that didn't they? Didn't believe it to be that dangerous because the, the um, some of them give statements that were then form part of the the court case, and they said that they were told. That they would be, um, that they would be, they would go by airplane and car, and that they would be safe. And when I was was, and again we're going off of probably when I was in the refugee camp, I spoke to people who had paid money and were told that um, they could walk on because they were young men, but their wife and child would be transported if they paid extra in the back of a van, and they would get her, and the van didn't exist, and none of that existed, and instead they were made to walk, you know, over mountains in Macedonia and and make that crossing that we see so many people dying in between. Um, when they get to Turkey between Turkey and Greece so people traffickers are not nice people they don't tell the truth Um, they're telling people we have this foolproof safe way to get you into the UK you know gold standard ironclad you'll be chauffeur driven in the car you know we have all the everything all sorted out and then you arrive and no such passage exists and instead they're putting people in the back of what was a um, refrigerator container and there's a reason for that as well there's a reason why they chose a refrigerator container well, what was that? Yeah. Well, this has been going on for so long. And remember, the government, uh, borders were finding more and more ways to crack down on people smuggling. And so you can see, <clears throat> if you watch any sort of footage of Customs Point, um, rather than have to get lorry drivers to take their entire load off the back of a lorry, they'd use infrared, which um, they use an infrared camera, which goes along the side of a lorry and it'll, it'll flash up if there's a human person in there. Obviously, their body heat shows and it'll show through the walls of a lorry. It doesn't, if you put them in a refrigerated lorry, well then it can't tell if there's people inside. And that was the reason why they were using refrigerated containers. Some of the refrigerated containers had, um, they have a vent, like a vent that can be opened. This was, this vent had been closed. Um, I'm assuming in case they thought that anyone at Customs might have heard voices or heard anyone. So it was closed and it was completely sealed. They had done this exact run before using the exact same method, but I think it was with about 15 people. And obviously the oxygen inside that container managed to, cons- to sustain 15 people. 
but greed. And that's all it is, is greed. How many more people can we pack into the back of this? Greed me, they forced as many people into the back of it as they could possibly pile in. And clearly there wasn't enough oxygen. This thing was airtight. And Mo Robinson had pulled over not to let them out, but to open the doors to let air in because he had been instructed by his boss. And he's another character in this story because when Mo Robinson saw 39 bodies in front of him, his first instinct wasn't to ring for an ambulance. It was to ring someone else. No, he phoned Ronan Hughes. And the thing is, he was told to stop and let her in and to check on them and to see if they were okay. Then they were taken They were taken to, they were taken to be somewhere else to go up. Some of the people who had paid in full up front then would have been released. But apparently some of the, the people who maybe had only paid half their passage were then held. But basically held as hostages until the rest of the money was to be paid um, for them having reached their destination safely. Um, so he was only opening the door to let her and there was no reason for him to stop and these were all the things that we checked at the time because people, I don't know whether anyone remembers this but when this first happened there was a, a massive outpouring on social media of, you know, hashtag I stand with Mo all people who were convinced that the press were terrible people who had painted this poor man who was traumatised, you know, he'd, he was only doing his job and he'd just stopped and everyone who I worked in, and I know quite a few people who work in college, and every one of them who I asked went, he had absolutely no reason to stop there. First of all, those um, containers are sealed and the only person that can open them is when they get to the destination is whoever owns it because obviously that's how they make sure stuff doesn't get stolen or goes go, go AWOL. Um, what was he opening it for in the first place? It's all very suspicious. And then there was something else then that came out during that if you looked at Mo Robinson's Scania lorry cab, it had um, a Bulgarian number plate. And when police were seeking Ronan Hughes, because remember at the start Ronan Hughes refused to present himself and for a while they were seeking him, they put pictures of his lorry on. It had a Bulgarian number plate on it as well. And in fact, the majority of the people who were involved in this, any of the lorries that they were driving, had Bulgarian number plates on them. So... Genuine people who are involved in haulage then were telling me that obviously to get a haulage licence in the UK or Ireland, it requires you to jump through numerous checks. You're actually, you have to go through a lot of background checks. You have to have a certain amount of money in the bank to show that you can sustain. You have to have your insurance, everything up to date. It's very checked. It's a very regulated industry. You go to Bulgaria and you res- register your lorry in Bulgaria and get a Bulgarian haulage license. Well, that can be done very quickly and that can be done at a price. And they, the genuine haulage industry had been raising this with the police and with customs and with HMRC for some time and saying, you know that those cowboys are using those Bulgarian license plates and haulage licenses. Why are you not doing anything about it? And what they were also doing is at times when they wanted an excuse to be in Europe. So say they were stopped, they had to say, well, I'm here to pick up X, Y or Z. So say, and I'm like, people who are listening to this here in the haulage industry are going, she's just pulling numbers off her head. And yes, I am, because I don't know how much it costs to send a lorry to Europe to pick something up. But for example, say if that would have been a £20,000 run to go to drive to mainland Europe to pick up whatever goods and items that a business needed and return them, these boys were going in and saying... She will do it for five grand, like ridiculously undercutting it, you know, undercutting it to the point where it made no sense because they didn't need to make any money. They only need an excuse to drive to a certain point because that was where they then were going then to pick up 
people to traffic them back. And this was a method that they had been using for years and years and years, not just when they started trafficking people, because the Ronan Hughes of this world are smugglers going back a long, long time. You know, he was a smuggler anyway, and he had just then transferred his skills that had been honed over many years. He had learnt all of the methods and ways to try and bypass checks and customs and everything that goes on because he had been smuggling other items. And at some point, clearly, the realisation has been is, while this is high risk and risk of prosecution with decent returns, the people trafficking is much higher returns and the risk is actually a lot less, believe it or not, because lorry drivers up until then, we found, had been stopped constantly driving out of ports they were opening the van, find 10 or 12 people in the back foot and they were going, I didn't know them boys were there. You know, they must have jumped on when I wasn't looking or when I was in having my tea. And they weren't even getting prosecuted for it. So the risk associated with much less than, say, bringing in a haul of illegal cigarettes or smuggling drugs or smuggling weapons or smuggling any of those things. It was a much, you know, it was a higher turnover for a lower risk. and But it was actually, you know, preying on human life. And, you know, what would have happened if Mo Robinson had opened that trailer and 35 people were alive and four were dead. You know, what would he have done? Would he just carried on his journey, took them to where he was going and asked somebody else to deal with the, the aftermath of it? The problem existed because, the, you know, every single person inside that trailer was dead. So we don't know, probably, we don't know what's happened but on the previous journeys. Um, now, Ronan Hughes initially resisted extradition to England. He eventually was extradited to, uh, to England. And in the end, both he and Mo Robinson pleaded guilty. Mo Robinson pleaded guilty and basically handed over details of anyone who he'd been working with. So um, he then became like a prosecution witness almost, although he was still then convicted of, he pleaded guilty to 39 counts of manslaughter and was jailed in relation to that. Um, But he also gave information on who he had been dealing with. He didn't know, obviously, a lot of the sort of European connection because that wasn't his job. His job was just to pick, pick the, the lorry up and let the people out. Um, but, yeah, he then handed over details of Ronan Hughes, who then tried to fight extradition but was eventually extradited and convicted um, after... after it's, such a, it's such a complicated case, this as well, because when you think about it, the police had to then identify 39 people from Vietnam and try and trace their families... They then had to piece together the journey that these people had made and how many people that came across on that way, how much money they had paid. And then they had to start trying to find all the various different characters who were involved in it. And a lot of that caused police work that existed over numerous different jurisdictions. We have people convicted from Romania. We have people convicted from the south of Ireland, people convicted from the north of Ireland. You know, there's this was a massive undertaking. And I have to, to say... You have to hand it to the Essex police in terms of how, not just how they managed to pull this together, but also the speed at which they managed to get these convictions. Um, when you think about how many people were involved, um, they did a lot of work with the National Crime Agency. I know that, but uh, it, was it was a huge a very, operation. It, it, and it was a very high profile operation. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, as we say, we look at the other characters, including the Romanian uh, gang, because this was a joint operation with Romanian gangsters. Um, Ronan Hughes is understood to, as you've mentioned, he honed his skills with illegal cigarettes. And it's, this seems to have gone back for a considerable length of time. Was he, was he, was he acting, was he the head man here? 
or was or was there other were there other people behind him in Ireland? So you can tell by the length of the sentence that people got were they were ranked in terms of the sort of hierarchy, let's say, of where people thought the the, the authorities thought that they were they were ranked in terms of that. Um, so you have Ronan Hughes, who was sentenced to twenty years. Um, he was considered to be the leader of the, let's say, the sort of Irish aspect of the smuggling gang. He was the, the person who was arranging the haulage drivers for that part of their journey. Um, he wasn't the person who was obviously dealing with the the desperate people trying to get, you know, trying to get to another place. He wasn't that person. And so then we have a Romanian by the name of George Nicka who was jailed for 27 years and he the court was heard that he was the head of the gang. So he was the person who would have been the middleman who was sourcing and he would have had numerous workers working for him out and about in the middle trying to recruit people and source them in, telling them these fairy tale stories um, and you know I have been in refugee camps and when I said I've been in illegal refugee camps you can see the people traffickers wandering around they're there in plain sight I mean they couldn't have been more obvious um, in terms of who they were you see these people who have walked for vast different, um, over vast periods of time over vast distances they have very little in the worldly goods and you're standing I mean I remember standing in the middle of one refugee camp and there was rats bouncing around the place all over the place was full of rubbish and I remember looking across and there was a guy who was pristine I mean, he had a pair of white trainers on them, though, you know, um, perfectly dressed. And I said, who's he? And everyone all of a sudden clammed up. And that was the people trafficker. He's just wandering around going, does your family have any money? Do you want to, me to help you get to X, Y, or Z, be it Germany, be it the UK, where is it you want to go? Um, and he's the person trying to recruit people. So um, you would find that NECA probably had numerous people like that out working for him. They'd have been getting paid quite small sums of money. And they were the people then who would have gathered all the, the migrants together. We also know that um, Eamon Harrison, who was from, from Mayo Bridge, he was sentenced to 18, 18 years in prison, so he was the person who had brought the, the migrants from their original pickup point to the, the port in Suburga. And then um, we also had Christopher Kennedy, who was from Tassa, it's a tiny little place, I think, beside Kitty, if I'm right. And he was sentenced to seven years in prison. Um Right up until then, I mean, I think there were seven key players. There was also another Romanian, um, Alexandru Hanga, who was had an address in Essex. who got three years for conspiring to assist unlawful immigration. Um, Valentin Kaloda, who was a Romanian, he had an address in Birmingham, was dressed for fo- was jailed for four and a half years. And then there was other minor convictions that attached to the outside of this as well. I think when we came to the end of it, there's something like eleven people were convicted in total, so seven of the main sort of players, and then there was another couple of convictions of people who were involved in more minor roles. For some reason, however, and he wasn't the main player, because, I mean, Harrison had done exactly the same thing, but Mo Robinson was the guy who opened the thing, and he's the guy who we have, with a stupid look on his face on CCTV, uh, his stupid cowboy hat, he does, I, I don't want, I'm not trying to drum up any sympathy for Mo Robinson, but he seems to me, no harm to him, he seems to me to be a bit of an agent. Well, he was a very inexperienced lorry driver and a lot of people pointed that out. You know, he also had um, bought a very nice house. He was driving a very nice car and there's people who were just starting out in that haulage industry who were asking questions. Those lorry cabs themselves cost a significant amount of money. Um, so... Robinson, well, I mean, the fact is that once he was arrested, 
he folded pretty quickly under under questioning. So if you look at him and Eamon Harrison basically performed the exact same role. Eamon Harrison gets 18 years, Mo Robinson gets 13 because he provided a lot of information that then helped to bring the other members of the, the gang together. Um, and then he was, they were all subject to confiscation orders in terms of, of property and stuff as well. So, yeah, I mean, he seems that he was somebody who was probably a bit work shy and was looking to make as much money as he could with as little work as he possibly could get away with doing. You know, people who work in Hollage genuinely for a living, work extremely long hours. They are away from their families for long, long periods of time, trying to earn a crust, you know, and earn their money and earn their keep, and it's a well-paid job. But um, he was someone who clearly thought, well, sure, if I only did one one of these runs a month, that'll keep me and I'll be fine. You know, I don't need to do any more than that. Um and he's he ended up in Belmarsh, which doesn't seem a pleasant place to be. No, well, I've never been to Belmarsh, but and I don't intend to ever go to it. But I mean, it don't it doesn't. And you know, they'll they'll, they'll do their time for what is a pretty horrific horrific crime. And um, you know, the we still the sort of I suppose the hangover from this case continues on because just this week, as you know, the the Belfast Telegraph carried the story that said that. That, that very distinctive red Scandia lorry cab that Mo Robinson was driving. He's already been subject to confiscation orders in terms of whatever equity was on his house. Um, and uh, there was also, I think, his car, a watch, some money, it was in a bank account. This was all confiscated and that was distributed among the 39 victims. Police continue to confiscate as much money as they can from these people and send it to those victims, which again, um, you know, we can be very critical sometimes of police investigations into things but this is like you know a masterclass in policing to be quite honest with you and not only have they handled the policing of it but you can see that there have been real steps made to make this to handle it as sensitively as possible as well bearing in mind so I mean even now when people think you know God, that case seemed like a while ago and um, that's over so the the lorry was auctioned off this week. It was auctioned off, um, I believe, for just it had something like over £11,000. Um, and that money then will be separated out and given to the families of those 39 people, along with any other assets that have been seized from any of the other people who have been convicted in relation to it. So, a key factor in smuggling people across the channel from mainland Europe to Britain a key part was played in conjunction with Romanian gangsters by people based in the Armagh and Monaghan area of here in Northern Ireland, people from the border. They're now doing serious time for a very serious crime. It's hard to believe, but given the sums involved, that they weren't replaced Clearly they've been replaced. This did not stop with this ring being exposed. It's like anything, you know, you take some of the people out and you might disrupt it for a while. You might disrupt the the, the, the line because remember this involves numerous people playing all sorts of different roles. You know, no two, no two people really are doing the same thing. They're all playing a different role in the, the people smuggling network. Um, you take some of them out and okay, you disrupt it for a while, but they immediately are replaced. I think one of the things that struck me about this case was it's so early, you see people, traffickers prosecuted at all. You know, they operate in such a world where the people who they're exploiting are terrified and clearly they're also illegally um, transported into the countries. And some of the, the horror stories that I heard, you know, 
people being told were taken to one place and then just thrown out in the middle of nowhere, you know, with no belongings, no phones, no nothing. People, you know, being sexually assaulted by people traffickers, um, you know, thrown into dinghies which are completely unfit and taken across the, the sea. There's, there's, this is probably one of, you know, the most profitable underground networks that exist currently in the world is the movement of people. Um, and it did just involve criminals who were involved in other aspects of criminality who realised criminals will go where the money is. So you look at Ronan Hughes. Ronan Hughes, for years, was smuggling cigarettes, fuel, anything that had a few quid in it, was well known for that. You know, it was a sort of, you know, a, an open secret that Ronan Hughes was a smuggler. He moves into this line of work, and this is clearly massive money. So he's making big money here. Um, and until that's grand, until it all goes wrong, doesn't it? And then it really did go wrong in the, the most horrific and horrible way. Alison Morris. Crime correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from Sky, the BBC, and Channel 4. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can hear many more like it at belfasttelegraph.co.uk forward slash podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiancé. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>